Let's open Scripture together this morning to the book of Revelation. Revelation 12, where we have the vision given by the Lord Jesus to John. And in this vision, he sees a dragon and he sees a fight. And we, under, we learn the identity of that dragon, and that uh, will connect with our text in, in Genesis 3, where the dragon has different ways of appearing in the course of history. Revelation 12, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short." And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had, been, who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. I invite you to turn with me to Genesis 3 where we'll be focusing our attention and the preaching on the first seven verses, continuing our series 
on these opening chapters. Chapter 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. That's as far as we'll go this morning. In response, we'll sing about the Lord's salvation in hymn three, the stanzas one and five. Church of our Lord Jesus Christ, We are faced this morning with one of the most mysterious and misunderstood passages in the Bible. It's mysterious because from seemingly out of nowhere, sin is injected and evil is introduced into God's perfect creation. In seven short, even somewhat cryptic verses, the Bible describes the introduction of sin into the world, a subject that will be dealt with for the rest of the Bible and really for the rest of history till the end of time, sin is part of life. And this introduction of sin comes to us via a talking snake to a naked woman who eats fruit from a forbidden tree. On the surface, it has all the elements of the making of a a good fable. And those mysterious, even strange elements have caused many to misunderstand our text as a fable or a myth, maybe a metaphor. Unbelievers, for example, have long fictionalized the Garden of Eden. You don't have to look far to find humorous advertisements cartoons making use of Eve's eating of the, quote, apple from the tree. But even those, some of those who confess the name of Christ read our text and say, you know, this couldn't possibly be historical fact. 
After all, no one has ever seen a talking snake. They conclude that Moses must be using symbols here in order to get across a main point. And they suggest that the main point is that at some point sin entered into God's perfect world and began its poisonous effect, but we simply don't really know who brought it in, who's responsible. We don't know really how it all came about. We just know that it is. It came in somehow. But what is overlooked and ignored by all such people is that our text, Genesis 3, is part of the whole book of Genesis, and Genesis presents itself as historical reality. The book of Genesis didn't come to Moses in a vision like the Apostle John received when he wrote the book Revelation. Moses is recording history from chapter 1 to chapter 50. Genesis is not a book of symbols like Revelation, the book of Revelation is. It's the book of beginnings, historical beginnings of very real flesh and blood people, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. If, as we've already seen from Genesis 1 and 2, that Moses is presenting the history of God's created work, creating work, so in Genesis 3 he brings us historical realities. And what is revealed in our text is not that sin somehow entered into the world, but that sin came into creation through the deliberate decision of mankind. So I proclaim to you this word of the Lord, mankind breaks covenant with God. That's our theme. Mankind breaks covenant with God. We'll see the temptation, the transgression, and the toll. Our text begins with a, a simple description of an animal. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Notice for a moment just how this, this straightforward account uh, fits the same style and pattern of Genesis 1 and 2. There's nothing otherworldly about this snake. This was just one of God's many created animals. It's even stressed. It's just one of the, uh, one of the many snakes slithering around in the garden. That's also why we should not take this description in a negative sense. The ESV has translated the verb there as crafty. And when you hear the word crafty, that makes you think of a beast that has by its nature evil intentions. It, it gives a kind of a negative picture. But we know already that all of God's creation was declared by the Lord to be very good. Also, the serpent was very good. This same word translated crafty is translated in other parts of Scripture as wise or prudent, and that would be the better sense here. Like he, Proverbs 14, for example, has the simple believes everything, but the prudent, same verb, the prudent gives thought to his steps. So we're to think of the serpent not as an inherently evil creature, but as a creature that had a good sense of 
prudence, a creature careful in his ways, having an eye for the best advantage in a situation. So you can see how it makes sense that Satan would choose this particular creature to bring forward his temptation. Now, I, I say Satan, even though our text does not mention the name of Satan. Yet there are indications that there is more here than just a snake. When later in the chapter the Lord curses the snake, then He speaks of placing enmity between the snake and the woman, between the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring. The Lord describes an ongoing battle between the two lines that will end one day in the crushing of the serpent's head. And we realize that that cannot refer to physical snakes. Lots of people don't care for snakes. I'm not a big fan of snakes myself, but we have to admit that the great war in this world is not between humans and snakes. It's between God's people and Satan's people, between the Lord and the devil. Later on in Scripture, this is made perfectly clear as we read it in Revelation 12, verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down. Then comes the identification, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So inside the snake is the fallen angel Satan. He chooses to approach mankind in the form or inside of a snake. And here we see something of the devil's methods already that we should take note of. He often approaches us very slyly, very carefully. Certainly, Satan can come at times with a, with a hammer blow, with physical persecution, and it may be that we would feel that in our time yet here in Canada. But more often, he comes to tempt, he comes to tempt with, a, with a soft touch. He, he comes with, a, with a gentleness, a, a, a persuasiveness in order to reach us with our guard down. We have to be aware of that. He, he, he can come to us through the seduction of wealth. He can approach us with the pleasures of entertainment, videos, movies, YouTube channels, books, whatever, alcohol, drugs, sex, each of which in themselves is not evil, just like the snake is not evil. And although there is much good in those things I just mentioned, yet they can so easily be used by Satan or, or demons or our own flesh, they can be used for evil. They can be used to draw us away from the Lord even before we realize it. So, brothers and sisters, as you, as you use those kinds of things, those vehicles for one reason or another, ask yourself, am I using these things, entertainment, alcohol, sex, am I using them, these things for good or for ill? Is the Lord honored with my choices, or is this all about me diving into my pleasure? Watch out for the subtle influence of the devil. 
And his subtlety comes out more clearly in his words to Eve. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time, actually any time, on the talking snake and get hung up on that. Too many, they look at that and say, that's impossible. Snakes don't talk. But to any who believe that the Lord God created the world from nothing by the power of His Word, why should a talking snake be an issue? We don't know what the communication was like between animals and man in the Garden of Eden, so we just need to be quiet on the issue. But that a snake talks, that's not outside of God's ability. The more important point is what the devil says through the mouth of the snake. Did God actually say? Very, very careful he is. He takes the backdoor approach. Did God really say? And it may sound at first like an innocent question, but brothers and sisters, very few questions are really innocent. You have to ask yourself, what's behind the question? What's the motive for the question? What's the purpose in asking the question? What the serpent is doing with his question is calling into doubt the very Word of God. Did God really say what you think He said? The devil knows exactly what God said. He was listening in. He's not looking for information. He's planting a seed of doubt in the woman's mind. Did God really say that? And that's another one of Satan's methods that he still uses today we should be aware of. Everybody, it's a little different today because everybody has a copy of the Bible today. So you don't have to go by memory. You can just open it up. So the devil shifts the question. He doesn't so much ask, is that what God said? But he asks more often, did God really mean what He said? Does that really mean the same for us today as it did back then? Surely God didn't really mean that for us in our time, right? This is how many issues get reasoned out. Homosexuality. Some think homosexuality can't be evil. So then when they run across Romans 1, for example, which says that homosexuality is evil and is a sin, they say, well, that has to be a cultural thing for Paul. God didn't really mean that for us. The Bible says elsewhere that women are not supposed to teach or have authority over men in the church, but it can't really mean that, can it? The question is asked. The doubts are sown. That's so archaic, so draconian. Surely that no longer applies to us today. Our sister churches in the Netherlands, brothers and sisters, they, they, they have fallen for this hook line. Our former sister churches... I just learned, maybe some of you have heard the same thing, that over the last week or two, several of their congregations have adopted a, a position toward homosexual marriage where they, they will now bless those unions. They accept homosexual marriage. This is our, these were our sister churches up until two years ago. They were led down the garden path by the devil. 
And we better watch out. It doesn't happen to us. Notice that Satan addresses himself to the woman. Again, very subtle. He doesn't go to the head of the family. He goes to his wife. He doesn't go to the one who heard the word, the command of God directly in the first place, but he goes to the one who heard God's word secondhand, right? The command uh, regarding the tree came to Adam. Eve was created after that. Satan doesn't address both of them together, but he singles one out. He singles the woman. Though Eve is not spiritually weaker than Adam, yet her position as helper does make her vulnerable in a certain way. She doesn't have the same level of responsibility as Adam. And the devil, he picks up on that. He, he's trying to use that to his advantage. His tactic is to divide and conquer. And he's pretty successful. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, we might think that's a silly question. Why ask that question? Of course the Lord didn't say that. But Satan's point is not the obvious answer, but rather the sinister suggestion in the question, the suggestion that perhaps, perhaps this, this Creator isn't so good as you, as you think He is, Eve. For if the answer to the question were yes, then God would be made out to be some kind of cruel tyrant who expects man to work in his garden but doesn't give him any of the fruit of that work. Satan's wicked implication is that maybe Eve, maybe the Lord isn't quite the loving God you think He is, that He pretends to be, and in itself that makes that question blasphemous, that, that implication. And yet the woman takes the question. She doesn't tell him to stop. She doesn't denounce the suggestion. She doesn't curse the snake for that rebellious insinuation, but she dignifies the question by engaging with a response. And so she begins the fatal transgression. For we have to understand that Eve didn't sin only at the moment that she bit the fruit. There's a process here that, that, that the eating of the fruit is the climax of the turning of her heart. But the turning of her heart has a beginning the moment she tolerates the snake and his evil question about God's goodness. For what would have been the godly response? Should she not have turned away from the serpent and reported this blasphemy to her husband, Adam? It was Adam, you recall, who had been charged with both tilling the garden and keeping the garden. If you go back to chapter 2, work it and keep it. That word keep could also be translated guard. It was Adam's primary task to both cultivate and protect the paradise of God from any hostile elements. And as helper fit for Adam, Eve should have turned to her husband and let him deal with this upstart snake. But she doesn't do that. She engages 
and answers the serpent on his own terms. In doing so, she distorts the marriage relationship. She takes the headship of Adam for herself. Even more, the woman who was given charge over the animals, remember that, they were both man and woman given dominion over the animals, she is letting herself be ruled by an animal. He has the upper hand over her, the snake does. So what we see here, beloved, is as Eve starts her response to the serpent, God's created order is being turned upside down. And Adam, Adam lets it all happen without a fight. Eve, yes, she subtly usurps his role and she, she submits to an animal, but her husband Adam watches it all passively. Did you know Adam was standing right there? Verse 6. We read there that woman, when she eventually eats of the fruit, it says she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam was right there. Standing next to Eve, standing next to those two trees, observing the interchange between the serpent and his wife, and he says nothing and he does nothing. It's a colossal failure of headship on his part, a colossal failure to live up to the marriage covenant as well as to the creation mandate. By this neglect, both Adam and Eve are already on the verge of breaking their covenant with God. The taking of the fruit seals the deal, but man's faithfulness to God is already unraveling through this discussion with the devil. It's a vivid reminder for us, also as husbands and wives, to do our utmost to be in and live in harmony with each other to assist each other in, in the fight against sin. There's no greater danger to a marriage, to a family, than when mom and dad become divided over against each other. The head of the family must work with the helper, with his wife. They must work together as a team in order to guard the family against the attacks, the wiles of the devil. So sisters, dear wives, dear sisters, Seek the direction of your husbands when confronted by temptation. And husbands, be on the alert. Strengthen your wives. Stand up for your family. Don't let the world get the upper hand in your home. And together support each other. Don't fight these battles individually. Stand together against the attacks when they come. Encourage and support one another as husband and wife. That Eve's faith in God is weakening is shown not only in the, the fact that she carries on a discussion with the evil-suggesting serpent, but also in the content of her response, what she says back to him. Verse 2, her answer, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve is selective in her reply. 
She chooses to stay with the devil's focus and speaks only about the trees. And she refers to the trees in general and and to the tree in the middle, but she doesn't mention the name of that tree. If you look back to God's original command, the Lord spoke specifically about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And remember, there were two trees in the middle. Eve is just skating over that, or she's, she's being vague here. She's gravitating away from the precision of God's original word, and that becomes more clear in what she says next. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. You may not touch the tree. The Lord never said that. God had spoken only of eating the fruit, not of touching the tree. So Eve, with her response, she not only dulls the original words of God somewhat, but carelessly now she adds to His command making the Lord out to be more severe, more strict than, in fact, He was. That's the other way we can negate the Word of God, isn't it? We can take away from God's Word and say, no, God doesn't really say that or doesn't really mean that, but we can also add to God's Word. Either way, you end up twisting, changing, perverting what the Lord really said The devil with his question had raised the concept that perhaps God was was not everything he pretended or claimed to be. Perhaps he was not the great provider and loving father he portrayed himself as. And Eve is swallowing that idea. And with Eve in that vulnerable position... And seeing no opposition from husband Adam, the devil strikes boldly. Verse 4, you will not surely die. Faster than a rattlesnake or a king cobra, Satan strikes out at the heart of the woman with lethal force from starting with raising a question about God's integrity, Satan now pointedly contradicts God's very word in a brazen lie, you will not surely die. He even takes the words of God's original command (coughs) and he turns them upside down. You absolutely won't die, Eve. He's calling God a liar. Now... And there's no opposition from the husband or the wife. And he gives a reason, the devil does. Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you see how ingeniously wicked Satan is? Now that Adam and Eve are disposed to thinking less of God than they ought, Satan capitalizes on their weakening faith and further cast God in a negative light. He he paints a picture here of of the Lord as a stingy God who is selfishly holding back something from His creatures. He's holding back the knowledge of good and evil from you, Eve, Adam. He pointedly calls God a liar. He makes Him out to be a tyrant who wants to keep His created beings in submission to Himself while He enjoys enjoys the good things in life 
This is the, the caricature Satan makes of God. He holds out then to man the possibility of being like God. You can have what God has. You can be on God's level. Oh, what a devious and devastating temptation. Just what man wants to believe, isn't it? Still today. This is still the temptation. This is still the lie that so many fall for all over the world. That we can be like God. We can be equal to God in knowledge and in power. Think of some examples from a little bit later in Scripture when we come across the, the, the tower builders, the Tower of Babel. Genesis 10, Genesis 11, they were building a monument to what? We're going to build a tower to our name. That was with fist up to God. Nebuchadnezzar has the same spirit later on when he walks around the walls of his city and he says, look at all this vast kingdom that I built, that I did by my own power. The Roman emperors in the days of Jesus, they thought they were gods. People would worship them. And is it not the case today that mankind thinks, believes that he is in control of his own destiny? Doesn't, don't human beings think that we can solve all the world's problems through science, through medicine, technology? Think of what Disney and so much of the media teach in their, their, their videos and movies. Every person has the power within himself. You've got all that you need. So all you need to do is believe in yourself and you can do anything. That's the message of the world. You can solve your problems at home, at work, in society by believing in yourself, having faith in humanity. Many people are enraptured with that original lie of Satan that they can be like God or even worse, be their own God. And now I think it becomes really clear why this sin of Adam and Eve is, is not some light matter. You know, some people wonder about that. <clears throat> How could such a simple mistake lead to such brutal consequences in the world? I mean, it was just a fruit, right? How could biting an apple, some say, be the cause of all the misery in this world? But it wasn't just the biting of a fruit, was it? Eve didn't just happen to take the wrong fruit from the wrong tree one day at random. It's actually not even about the fruit, is it? Eve gave very careful consideration to her actions. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, that's three considerations, she took of its fruit and ate. Before her eyes, she had it clear. The covenant God and His Word over against the devil and His Word. 
And the devil's lies are so, so convincing, aren't they? Look how good the fruit is. Look at it. Beautiful food. Good for food. It looks good to the eye. The devil's lies appeal to our, our physical bodies. They appeal to our sense of artistry and beauty. They even appeal to our intellectual appetite. The fruit was desirable for gaining wisdom. How many times haven't we stood at a fork in a road and the one path looks so attractive to us. It, it's pulling us so easy, so nice, so pleasant. It would be good for me. It would be advantageous for my growth in wisdom. While the other path looks rather small, rather narrow, rather difficult. Brothers and sisters, understand the devil is not an idiot. He knows exactly how to appeal to our basic instincts. But in all these choices, let us be fully aware, just as Eve was fully aware, it's a choice between God and His promises or the devil and His promise. Whom would she believe? Whom would she follow? Whom will you believe? And whom will you follow? Those are really the only two choices in life, aren't they? Sometimes we, we like to think that life can be neutral, at least in some parts of it, that you can live more or less life the way you want to live, live for yourself, that that part of life is not necessarily against God, But Scripture makes it clear all of life is either for or against. Right across the board, there is no other alternative. You either live for the Lord or you live for yourself, and thus you live for the devil. And that carries with it a terrible toll. Sin always has devastating consequences. Sooner or later, a price is paid for disobedience to God's commands. We find that toll coming out in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Now, we know that they were naked already, of course. But what's the difference? The difference is now they were aware of it and they were ashamed of their nakedness. It became a thing. They felt compelled to sew fig leaves together and cover themselves over somewhat so they could at least bear to look at each other. They were filled with, with shame. Where does that come from? Shame, shame is a symptom of a broken relationship, a broken covenant. Soon they will hide from the Lord when He comes into the garden, but already now the guilt of their sin presses upon them. They understand what they've done. Adam and Eve had broken faith with their Creator, they had turned away from the Lord their God, and so their own consciences accused them of rebellion. 
They were in a state of revolt against their God. And so also the relationship between the two of them was broken down and affected. You ever notice that? When the relationship with God is broken, the vertical, then there's tension on the horizontal, if not brokenness. Very soon in chapter 3, husband and wife will be blaming each other for their own sin. It's a terrible cost, the misery and the shame of sin. Thanks be to God then that there was that other Adam who came later on to take away our shame. Thanks be to God that Jesus, the last Adam, came and withstood all the temptations of the devil with all the devil's subtlety, with all of his force, from the, the twisting of his word in the desert, the beginning of his ministry, all the way to the, to the trickery of the Pharisees throughout his ministry, all the way to the outright treachery of a close friend and the full betrayal of his covenant people as they nailed him to the cross. The last Adam never caved. He never buckled. He never fell. Jesus died, but he never sinned. And that work, brothers and sisters, brings us hope in this sinful, shameful world. And because he never sinned, he came back from the dead and holds out life to all who put their trust in him as their Savior. So, beloved, do not fall for the tricks of the devil. Keep your eyes wide open for his trickery. Don't live in Satan's service, but believe the truth and the sacrifice of God's Christ and live for Him. Amen.